Okay, tonight is May the 10th, 2012, and we got rain. Isn't that great? I mean, we got a good amount of rain. Thank you, Lord, for that. We sure needed it. Don't have to go another summer of blazing heat and see everything turning brown and dying. Isn't it great to have rain, even though it does make it a little messy getting in? All right, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth. That it's not about the truth, it is the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is truth. So we have the written word and we have the living word. It's rare indeed for your children in these days to want to know your truth. And yet when we don't know it, we stumble and fall and we get into all kinds of trouble. Most of it we bring on ourselves. So we pray that you will help us to focus. Help us to take this information, put in our long-term memory, so that we can stand for truth and be good and faithful servants. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you have probably heard about the uh, stance that our president has made on a very critical issue. And so I'm going to take some time this evening to address that because I think it is a critical issue. I went to the Internet and found a report that it would be available to anyone. And I just took that report, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. And what you see is in black is what the report says, and what you see in red are my comments regarding what is said in this report. By the way, this has nothing to do with uh, anyone's political persuasion, nor is it uh, in any way trying to besmirch the character of our president. We're talking about issues. And this is an issue that is very important. It affects all of us, all believers, in fact, unbelievers as well. But I think it's important for me to at least to speak out what I see as the biblical perspective on these issues. Now, the words that are in blue were in blue on the report, and I just didn't change them. President Obama today, 5-9-12, which was yesterday, announced that he now supports same-sex marriage reversing his long-standing opposition amid growing pressure from the Democratic base and even his own vice president. Now, this statement implies that it was growing pressure from the Democratic Party and from the vice president that influenced the president to change his stand from opposing same-sex marriage to supporting it. Now, I'm not reading anything into this. I'm just trying to clarify what that first statement is saying, it clearly is indicating that there's an implication there. 
In an interview with ABC's ABC News, Robert Roberts, Robin Roberts, the president described his thought process as evolution led him to this decision based on conversations with his staff members, openly gay and lesbian service members, and his wife and daughters. So what caused the president to come to this crucial decision? A thought process that evolved over time. And what was it that influenced this evolutionary change of thought? It was conversations with his staff members, openly gay and lesbian service members, and his wife and daughters. Notice, this is a moral issue, yet there is no mention of pastors, ministers, or the Bible having any influence in this decision process. thought I would just point that out. I have to tell you that over the course of several years, this is, by the way, the, uh, quoting the president, I have to tell you that over the course of several years, as I have talked to friends and family and neighbors, when I think about members of my own staff who are in incredibly committed monogamous relationships, same-sex relationships, who are raising kids together. Anyone, even a president, who does not know or does not accept the Word of God as their standard is left without a moral compass and must rely on the opinions of friends, family, neighbors, and staff members to determine what is right and what is wrong. Because that's what's being explained here, that our president has made this decision based on these people that he has been in contact with and that's what anybody would do this is the natural thing to do if you don't have an absolute standard and there is no moral compass it's just trying to figure out from what uh, people say that you have contact with what is the right thing to do he goes on to say when I think about those soldiers or airmen or marines or sailors who are out there fighting on my behalf and you see in red here, on whose behalf? I heard this. It's also on video. This is a transcript. And I just was stunned. I, thought, I think that might be a newsflash to a lot of our servicemen that they are out there fighting on his behalf when I probably most of them think they're fighting on our behalf. So he says they're, uh, they're fighting on uh, my behalf, and yet... These servicemen feel constrained, even now that don't ask, don't tell is gone, because they are not able to commit themselves in a marriage at a certain uh, point. I've just concluded that for me, person uh, personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. Obama... <clears throat> told Roberts in an article, excuse me, in an interview to appear, which will appear on ABC's Good Morning America Thursday, which is this morning. I didn't see that. Did any of you see it? You saw it? Okay. The youngest person, no, are you the youngest or is Melissa? Marissa the youngest. 
Natalie's the youngest? Okay. Well, anyway, interesting. So we have these servicemen who are constrained, even though don't ask, don't tell has been set aside because they don't have the freedom to marry. Here's my comment. The Bible never allows believers to compromise with degenerates. We don't make concessions or allowances for degeneracy. We don't yield, surrender, give way, or concede anything to it. That is to anything that is of a degenerate nature. Degeneracy is never satisfied. When one concession is made, more and more are sought. Homosexuals wanted to be accepted into our military, so Bill Clinton came up with the idea of don't ask and don't tell. It was a compromise with degeneracy. Homosexuals and lesbians were allowed, to, allowed into the military, but not officially. You see, that was a concession. That was giving in to degeneracy. It was, it was a step, step backwards, essentially. It was a retreat. And as you can imagine, that didn't satisfy him. Of course, that didn't satisfy them, so our current president further compromised with them by rescinding don't ask and don't tell so that they no longer have to hide their degeneracy. The military has officially accepted homosexuals and lesbians. So they got what they wanted. It came incrementally, but there was another concession made. Now that idiotic thing was set aside. should have been set aside. should never have come in come to pass to begin with because the principle is you do not compromise or give concessions to degeneracy. But now they are officially, openly in our military. Now, of course, that didn't satisfy them either because their same-sex unions are not officially accepted as being legitimate marriages. With our current president's decision to support same-sex marriage, it appears that it will be just a matter of time before same-sex marriage will be officially accepted, it makes one wonder what the next concession they demand might be. And there's going to be another one. They never stop pushing the envelope. And I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but you don't have to be a genius to figure out the trend of giving in, giving in, giving in, and I'm pretty sure in our lifetime, and some of us are pretty old, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure, in, at least in my lifetime, that same-sex marriage will be officially recognized and accepted in the entire nation. Back to the report. Excerpts of the interview will air tonight on ABC's World News with Diane Sawyer. Uh, that's where I saw this, by the way. The president stressed that this is a personal position and that he still supports the concept of states deciding the issue on their own. And you see what I put in their parentheses for now. But he said he's confident that more Americans will grow comfortable with gays and lesbians getting married, citing his own daughter's comfort with the concept. Now, my comment so Americans should grow more comfortable with homosexuals and lesbians getting married because the president's daughter is comfortable with the concept. I don't know about you, but it doesn't make me more comfortable. 
Furthermore, rather than the father teaching his daughter what is right from the Word of God, the daughter is teaching the father what is right based on what she is comfortable with. That's essentially what it appears to say, at least to me. Uh, these, these titles in blue that you see there that I'm kind of just ignoring are hyperlinks. You could click there and go there, but this isn't hyperlinks. So the next part of the report says, it's, inter it's interesting, some of this is also generational. This is, the, again, the president speaking. The president continued, you know, when I go to college campuses, sometimes I talk to Republicans who think that I have a terrible that I have terrible policies on the economy, on foreign policy, but they're very clear when it comes to same-sex equality or, you, or you know, same-sex orientation, that they believe in equality. They are much more comfortable with it. In other words, he's saying that even people in colleges who are of a different political persuasion than he is still agree with him on this issue because it's all about equality, it appears, with what they're saying. My comment, it's not about equality, and you can't see it if you're hearing this. There's an exclamation point there. That means I would scream it if I thought it, I could. It's about what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is not. It's about obeying God and living by His immutable word are living according to man's opinions. That's your choice. It is always your choice. Back again, President speaking. You know, what is that? How do you pronounce that? Malia or Malia? Malia? Malia and Sasha, these are the President's daughters, they have friends whose parents are same-sex couples. There have been times where Michelle and I have been sitting around the dinner table and we're talking about their friends and their parents and uh, Malia and Sasha, it wouldn't dawn on them that somehow their friends' parents would be treated differently. It doesn't make sense to them and frankly, that's the kind of thing that prompts a change in perspective. He's explaining why he's changed his, his way of thinking. It's evolved. This is what I have to say. Unbelievers would remove all distinctions between people if they could. Everyone and everything is acceptable to them since they do not believe in absolutes. Now, this is the most of them. And because most people today are into postmodernism, which means there are no absolutes. Anything goes. The biblical distinctions between male and female, husband and wives, Parents and children, humans and animals, and even God and humans are rejected. In other words, to many unbelievers, there's no distinctions because anything goes. And they are trying to erase the distinctions that the Bible has placed. Again, what to the report. Roberts asked the president whether the first lady, Michelle Obama, was involved in his decision. Obama said she was, and he talked specifically about his own faith. Quote, this is something that, you know, we've talked about over the years, and she, you know, she feels the same way, she feels the same way that I do. 
That is that in the end, the values that I care most deeply about and she cares most deeply about is how we treat other people. And you know, I, you know, we are both practicing Christians. And obviously, this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others. He's talking about of others, other Christians. And you notice that I have underlined here, practicing Christians. Now, I don't know, nor do you, nor does anyone else probably know for certain whether our president is a Christian or not. Because we can't go into his soul. God knows whether he is or not. But I'm taking a little bit of an issue with him saying that he's a practicing Christian. Because you would expect certain behavior from a practicing Christian, would you not? Well, practicing Christian? The National Day of Prayer was canceled. However, thousands of Muslims were invited to the White House on their special day of prayer. And the president wasn't quoted, excuse me, and the president was quoted saying, this is no longer a Christian nation. He held a reception at the White House for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Pride Month. I could give a lot more. I'm not trying to besmirch anyone, but I'm just saying, does his actions follow what he says, that he is a practicing Christian? Here's a couple of quotes. In a 2004 interview with Kathleen Falsani, Obama said, quote, I believe that there are many paths to the same place, unquote. Obama also said, quote, All people of faith, Christians, Jews, Muslims, animists, everyone knows the same God. End of quote. That doesn't sound like a practicing Christian. Appearing before a recent meeting of Planned Parenthood, the, the largest abortion provider in America, Obama, Obama proudly, proudly said, quote, I have consistently had a 100% pro-choice rating with Planned Parenthood and the N-A-R-A-L pro-choice America. I don't want to belabor this. I'm just saying that just because someone says that they are a Christian or say that they are a practicing Christian, you actions speak louder than words. And words sometimes will determine uh, whether that sounds credible or not. Now, this is continuing from, this was a long sentence up here, when he said that he, he says, uh, we are both practicing Christians and obviously this position may be considered to be put us at odds with the view of others. But you know, when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it also, it's also the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And I think that's what we try to impart to our kids, and that's what motivates me as president. And I figure most the most consistent I can be in being true to those precepts, the better I'll be as a dad and a husband, and hopefully the better I'll be as a president. Now he says that, he, he says here that the root, he's talking about the root of his faith, is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, this t would tell me that he recognizes someone has told him or given him the gospel. 
that he knows that Jesus Christ has, was sacrificed on his behalf. Now, he doesn't say that he has personally accepted that, but at least he knows it. And, you know, I don't know whether he has or not. Again, I, that's not the issue. The issue is his stand on something that is biblically abhorrent. Living by the golden rule does not include approving, condoning, or accepting the sinful actions or false doctrines of others. Important to, to recognize. The Bible instructs us to separate from immoral believers and we are not to embrace them or their unbiblical beliefs. Here's a few scriptures to substantiate that. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you separate from every believer who leads an undisciplined life and that is not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, a few verses later, eight verses. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey the teaching in this epistle, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And I would suggest to you this would include those who are practicing homosexuals or lesbians and openly practicing it. They're not hiding it. They want to be accepted. They don't, they're, not, they're not struggling with this. They don't want to change. They want you to approve their degeneracy. According to, the, according to the polls, America is split down the middle on the issue of same-sex marriage. What an indictment. We are crying out as a nation for God to pour out His wrath on us. That's what's happening. Half of the people think that same-sex marriage is just fine. I have to admit, when I was watching the news and they always interview people and they always interview those who are fine with whatever is anti-biblical, there's one guy, he was a mechanic, and they said, what do you think about the president proving a same-sex marriage? He says, well... He said, you know, really, I don't really care who other people marry. It's the economy that's important. The economy is important. Not that our leader is accepting something that the Bible condemns. And any nation that accepts this, I hope you recognize, you can go throughout history. You can see in the Bible, God has wiped out. For 6,000 years, marriage has been between a man and a woman. But this is old school and passe, according to some people. They have become so sophisticated and enlightened that they now know that the Bible and all the billions of people who came before them are wrong. Their knowledge has evolved to the point where they now know that marriage is also between two men or two women. And I, I, if I have somewhat of a sarcastic tone in my voice, I can't hardly read this without it coming out. Because that's the way a lot of people think. People who believe that the earth evolved usually also believe that we are evolving. Not only are we in, uh, evolving in the sense that we're 
supposedly, I guess, our better bodies are getting better, which I think is just the opposite. I mean, with all the modern medicine and all the things we've done, we've polluted the, the, the water, the air, the food, and everything we have. Nearly everybody you know is sick in some, for, in some way. The only reason that we have a longer lifespan is because of the drugs that they've developed and they're able to technology keep us alive longer. But they also think that we evolve in our minds as well. A good friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Andy Woods, he's the pastor of Sugarland Bible Church, and I see him from time to time, wrote a book about the influence that evolution has had on our court system, specifically the Supreme Court. And he said when Darwin came along and people started thinking about uh, evolution and so forth, and we have a number of court, Supreme Court judges today, in, in their mind, uh, they don't go by the Constitution that was 230, about 230 years ago. You can't go by that. And you know why? Because we have evolved so much over that 230 years. We don't want to go back and see the bedrock principles that they have because they weren't as advanced. They hadn't evolved as much as we have. This same mentality goes throughout the country. I mean, through unbelievers, they don't have a standard, so they think, and they've been told, young people especially, the school system is just laden down with evolution. And so they think, we can't go back to the old school. We can't go back to that archaic document, that book, the Bible, because we've evolved so far from that. And here's what we get. What we get is now... We're so, so sophisticated and we're so enlightened that marriage is no longer between a man and a woman. It can be just as well two men or two women. Back to the report. Obama said the following to George Stephanopoulos in October 2011. Quote, I think that there's no doubt that as I see friends, family, children of gay couples who are thriving, you know that has an impact on how I think about these issues. Again, it's his environment, his surroundings, the people that he knows. That's what shapes his thinking. Here's my words on this. The words and actions of the President of the United States have an influence on the people of America, especially the young people. Consider Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky incident. Because of what he did and what he said, young people across the nation came to believe that it's okay to have oral sex. Because he got by with it. I mean, you know, it was, it's no big thing. I heard this from the mouths of young people myself. And you don't want to hear what I told them. We don't have time. <laughs> this is one reason that young people desperately need to be taught the Word of God. It must become their standard and nothing else. What does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? And I end on these few verses here. Because isn't that, that is our standard, right? You can read about all this. You can read this report. You can see all these opinions. What saith the Lord? Genesis 18.20 And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. 
Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And, you know, you hear all this today that if you have a homosexual or a lesbian relationship, that it's just normal, it's just natural, it's just an, uh, a natural alternative. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Verse 27. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I wrote a book, a booklet on homosexuality. It's still back there, I think, if, if we're not out of it. And one of the things I, one of, I wanted to prove from the Bible that there is no doubt that this is not only a sin, it's a grievous sin. The Bible calls it an abomination. But we don't treat homosexuals in a disparaging way. We don't judge them. That's not our job. That's God's job. But we must make decisions as to how we are going to interact with them. And if they are a homosexual that recognizes that this is an abomination and it's sin and they are struggling with it and they are trying to uh, get past it, then we can still have fellowship with a person like that. You know, we can, we can try to help them. We can encourage them. We can give them scriptures. We can tell them how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can do a lot of things like that. But if they are a homosexual or a lesbian that claims that this is fine and dandy, that there's nothing wrong with this, and if you're going to have a friendship with me, if we're going to have a relationship, you're going to have to accept me as I am with that type of person from those people. You don't have anything to do with them. It's not that we don't care for them. This, some families are torn apart by this. Because if you are a believer and you believe that the Word of God is our standard and you live by it, then it might be uh, someone in your own family, someone that you are close to and that you love. And they get into this practice and they say that this is okay and they don't care what the Bible says, that you ought to accept it. What does the Bible say? You have to separate from that person. Because if you don't, you're essentially condoning and giving concessions into degeneracy, and we, we're not allowed to do that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lies with a woman, both have committed a detestable act. They sh shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, we're not under the Mosaic Law today, and so homosexuals are not executed. But that does not change God's attitude towards it. And to sweep it under the rug and say, well, that's just an alternative lifestyle, and it's okay, so many people are accepting it. I hope you're not. Because if you are, then you're coming under the divine discipline from God. He requires us to do this. And we have to make these discernments. And it's kind of hard to do because people are going to accuse you of being unloving and being uh, judgmental. And they will say, 
say, thou shalt not judge. But we're not judging the person. But we have to make discernments and judge that when a person is openly defying God, that we can't have anything to do with them. That's what it amounts to. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abomination of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Here's the last verse, Jude 1.7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In other words, what he's saying here is in this portion of Jude, He's saying if he did not spare the angels that were confined in Tartarus, remember we've studied that? And then he goes on to say, and if Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't spare these cities as well? What makes you think that he's going to spare you if you defy the living God? It makes one think. But before I close, I want to make sure that you also understand this. Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. Nor is, nor is suicide. In other words, I don't know how many homosexual believers there are, but when a homosexual or uh, a person that is a lesbian, whatever it may be, when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're able to do that, then they receive eternal life in God's own righteousness and they are just as much a child is God as you are or as I am. And so just because a person is a homosexual does not mean that he's going to hell. And you hear that from a, a lot of confused believers. Jesus Christ paid for those sins as well. But it is a believer who is out of fellowship if they continue that practice. And the Lord will handle that. It's not up to us. Our job is to separate from someone that is demanding that we accept it. So that's my best shot at bringing you up to speed on what I regards as, regard as a very serious issue that took place yesterday. For when the head of our nation accepts something that God calls an abomination, I think that should get our attention. And if you are in a circles where this subject comes up, I hope you will take what is in your soul and stand for the truth of God's Word. And it's going to be harder and harder to do as time passes because you're going to be relegated to a religious fanatic. They're going to look at you like, where did you come from? You're a Neanderthal. Nathan there you go. You're, you're backwards. And that cannot deter us in the slightest. Okay, let's get to uh, back to getting the gospel right. By the way, does anybody, I guess I should ask, say, if it, does anybody have any questions or anything? Okay. Uh, we're in getting the gospel right. We're down here. We went through spiritual illumination for the unbeliever. You remember what that is? The unbeliever 
have to have a supernatural uh, entity to help them understand spiritual phenomena because they're spiritually dead. First, First Corinthians 2.14 gives us the problem. And then Matthew 15, 16, 15 through 17, John 16, 7 through 11, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 give us that information. And one reason you have to understand that is because when you start distorting this, you come up with some of the false doctrines that are in Reformed theology or what we call Calvinism, as well as other things. There's a number of them. Then we looked at the, the believer. Even we as believers have to have the filling of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us to understand Scripture. We went through 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. The Holy Spirit helps us in imparting truth and Bible doctrine to others. That's Luke 12, 11 through 12. John 14, 26. John 16, 13 through 14. Psalms 25, 8 and 9. Psalm 25, 12 and Revelation 2, 11. Remember that last one? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The ones who have ears have what? Positive volition. Hopefully they have spudazzo. They have that zeal. They have that hunger. They have that drive to know more and more about God and His plan and to be able to exploit His grace. So we turn a leaf to now. Now tonight we're going to get into prophecy. Now what we, for the last, I don't know how many times, three or four or five times that we've met, we've been addressing issues where people attack the Bible. We're really talking about an apologetic. We're talking about defending the truth of the Bible. Showing the evidence. Now, giving the evidence isn't going to automatically open the door to people. They have to have positive volition. But what I've shown you with this illumination is God will do the part of illuminating them. You give them the pertinent information and then the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit goes into effect. And then it's up to the person where they're going to accept it or reject it. Now, what we're going to look at now with regards to prophecy is another evidence why you can trust the Word of God. One reason I believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it is inerrant and it is my standard, is because of the prophecy that we see that is in it. The greatest evidence that the Bible is the Word of God is the prophecy it contains. You ever think of that? Do you know about one-third of the Bible? One-third is prophecy. And there are some churches that never go into prophecy because they think it's just confusing and distracting. Here's a quote. Let's see, what is it from? This is God Answers Ministries. Here's what it says. It seems reasonable to think that if God wanted to authenticate His communication, He would have to verify it in a manner that could not be duplicated by mere humans. In other words, by miracles. Beyond the evidence for the Bible's correctness, that would be manuscript evidence, and y'all are familiar with that now, right? Beyond that, and its historicity, which is the archaeological evidence, which we haven't dealt with yet, the most important evidence is that of its inspiration. The real determination of the Bible's claim to absolute inspired truth is in its supernatural evidence, including prophecy.
Now, this came from, the next quote came from the Berean call. Uh, they knew him not, January 2005. Quote, prophecy is the great proof that God exists, that the Bible is his word, and that Christ is his son and man's only savior. Prophecies were given to indisputably identify the Messiah. But look at this and have it in bold. Proof does not, however, equate to faith. Just because you prove something doesn't mean that someone's going to believe it. There must be a willing heart. In spite of hundreds of prophecies proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jews rejected him and remained largely in unbelief today. And we're... See, you can go... Hopefully you're able to do this. If you're talking to a Jew and they rejected Christ, they're not going to have anything to do with the New Testament. You can prove that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, from the Old Testament. Some of the greatest prophecies that have come to pass in our lifetime deal with Israel. The Bible prophesied that the nation of Israel would be destroyed, Deuteronomy 28:58 and Daniel 9:26. And it also prophesied that God would bring it back to be a nation. Israel is the only nation that was destroyed and did not exist for nearly 2,000 years, and yet it came back just as God said it would. You know, you don't hear people talking about this much, do you? I mean, you know what? The, I'm going to show you what the Bible has to say about this, and the Bible says this is huge. Do you know that the Bible puts this on a level higher than the Exodus? Did you know that? I'll take you to the Scripture. And yet today people just, oh yeah, well, Israel's there, and so on. Prophecy which reveals God's plan in advance is the missing element in all sacred scriptures of the world, of the world's religions. Because false gods cannot provide it. False gods can't prophesy. At least they can't do it correctly. Prophecy is not to be found in the Koran, the Hindu Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, the sayings of Buddha, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. In contrast, prophecy comprises about 30% of the Bible. Isn't that great? Have you ever thought about that? All these Johnny-come-lately religions, any religion, you name it, whoever their God is, whatever it is, go to their books, and this is what you will not find is prophecy. Because only God can tell the end from the beginning. Only God is omniscient and knows all things. So in none of these things do you find any prophecy. So if you're, what if, what if you had a chance to talk to a Muslim and you started talking about Christ and things were moving along and they were not really buying into what you say, you might say, uh, you know, I was just wondering, uh, can you give me some prophecies from the Koran? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Because the Bible has hundreds of specific prophecies. That have come to pass. I was just wondering, is that do you find that in the Quran? Muhammad couldn't even read or write. He certainly couldn't prophesy. Ezekiel chapter eleven, verse sixteen through seventeen. Therefore say, this is the Lord telling Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far among the nations, far away among the nations, and Though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I 
was a sanctuary for a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from all peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And that came to pass in our own lifetime. And people don't even care. How do we know this is referring to May 14, 1948? How do we know that? Because it's the only time that Israel was scattered abroad into many nations. Israel went into captivity into Assyria. They went into they didn't come back. That was the ten northern tribes. Went to, uh, into captivity in Babylon. But and, and this was only one nation and then they came back. So this can't be referring to that because it's referring to many nations. It's talking about after they were dispersed in 70 A.D. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14 through 15. Therefore, behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, listen to this, as the Lord lives who brought us up, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. They won't be crowing about that. But as the Lord lives who brought us, brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where He had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I have given their fathers. You see that? The Bible itself is elevating this bringing back of Israel to their homeland, which happened in our lifetime, most of our lifetimes, and elevating it above what happened in the Exodus. I would say that is huge. Jeremiah 23.8 But as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. This is God putting His very reputation. It's impossible for Him to lie. If He did not bring this to pass, He is not God. That's how important this is. And these aren't just generalities. They're coming back to the exact same place from all over the world. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 7 and 8. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. People will say, oh, well, yeah, that's going to happen at the second advent. Well, yeah, that's the second regathering. How do you know that? What's the verse I gave you? Does anybody remember it? that proves that that is going to be the second regathering and there's going to be a regathering before that. Somebody make my day and tell me where the verse is. Yeah. There you go. Let's guess she lives with me. <laughs> Isaiah 11, 11. <laughs> it describes the Jews coming back to the land and the, and the context clearly is talking about the second advent. And he says, I will regather you for the second time back to the land from all the nations of the earth. That's going to happen at the second advent. Before then, it's already happened. See, they're gathered together now in unbelief. And it is exceedingly significant. Jeremiah 31.10 Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off and say, quote, 
He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 24. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Don't you love that when the Bible just speaks just the Bible? The Lord God says this. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. That's what they did was profane it. Which you have profaned in their midst. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Now I submit to you, this would never come from the pen of just a Jew if he was not inspired by God to write it. They wouldn't write it if they could, and if they could, they wouldn't. Right? Who would do that? These are but a few of the prophecies recorded in the Bible which have been fulfilled in our lifetime. People who question the authority of the, or the authenticity of the Bible need to look no further than Israel. Anytime somebody questions the Bible, all you've got to do is say, you know what's over in that direction? Let's see, where are we? Over there somewhere is a place called Israel. It's a nation. And God said He was going to bring it back, and it's never happened before by any nation ever. And He prophesied. These are just a few of the verses. I could, you want me to give you this many more? No. I think this would suffice. It's a big deal that God brought them back. And He brought them back in our lifetime. People say, if I could just see a miracle. Well, look at Israel. Dummy. Don't, don't say that. I'm sorry that slipped out. Just as the Bible declared in Jeremiah 3:33, Jeremiah 10:11, Jeremiah 31:8 through 10, Ezekiel 11 through 17, 11:17, Ezekiel 28:25, and on and on, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been brought back to their own land after all these centuries. Such an incredible event has never happened to any other people, and certainly has no natural explanation. The Bible prophecies are so specific and numerous that no one can deny Israel's rebirth as a miracle of God. Some of you were here when I taught Israel Regathered. It's on the Internet. And the idea that Israel, when they became a nation, over in, a, in a day, that was prophesied as well. They would become a nation in a day. But they would withstand the attack of five Arab nations at the same time. They had tanks, airplanes, ships, everything. And Israel had a little more than pea shooters. And they wiped them out. They, with the help of God, that is. Even with Israel today, with regards to when we think of Israel, there are so many prophecies that deal with Israel that are coming true in our day. And this is another one right here. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people about. I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Let me paraphrase this for you. Anybody that messes with Israel is going to get their butt kicked big time. 
That's my expanded translation. <laughs> At the time of this prophecy, which was about 2,500 years ago, is when Zechariah made this prophecy. Jerusalem was in ruins and surrounded by desolate desert and swamp. Nothing could have been more ludicrous than to suggest that one day the concerned attention of a modern world of more than 5 billion people would be focused upon this unlikely place. And yet that has been fulfilled precisely as foretold. 2,500 years ago, God spoke to Zechariah because God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. And He has given it to us for our edification. And now we are living in this time. Here you have this little sliver of land. Do you know how much land Israel has as compared to the Arab land? One-sixth of one percent. That's how big Arab, uh, uh, Israel is compared to the land masses of the Arabs. A little bitty sliver of a nation. And what do you hear on the news all the time? Huh? The whole world shivers when they hear the name Israel in trouble, even to this day. Is there any doubt that World War III is going to develop from the Mideast, Israel? It's, it's, on our, it's on our minds. I mean, it, can't, it cannot not be on our minds. I was watching the news tonight in Syria. You know, they're going bonkers over there now. And the whole world gets on their tiptoes and they lean forward and they say, what's happening? Because Syria borders, Syria and Lebanon borders Israel. Anything that's happening in the close proximity of Israel, the whole world takes note. This little old bitty country with no oil. In God's amazing wisdom, He gave the the promised land, Canaan, as a little piece of dry, no-oil land in an area that is floating in oil. Now, why did he do that? It's not, it's not just a coincidence, by the way. The Bible emphasizes the importance of paying attention to prophecy. I think this would be a good time for me to, spot, uh, to stop uh, because I think... I better stop now while y'all are still paying attention. <laughs> and next time when we start, we'll remember, okay, we need to continue to pay attention. Uh, now, of course, some people aren't interested in prophecy. and Some people go a little overboard on prophecy. That's all they want to talk about. We live in very interesting times. I mean, every day something else is happening. Prophecies made 2,500 years ago come to pass in our lifetime. We see our nation crumbling around us. And God has placed us here. We are His children. We are the salt. We are the light. God depends upon us to reach out to unbelievers. We are His ambassadors. What a great opportunity we have. And we cannot in any way fulfill the great potential 
that God has given us if we get distracted from His Word. I don't know about you, but I love His Word. It is then you and it put in You are our God. That not only are you mindful of us, indeed, to be called your children, and some even have the opportunity to be called the Metacoi, friends, overcomers, winners. We pray that you will help us to shine in such a way that others can't help but see you through us. Pray that you will help us to take the things that were covered tonight and put them in our own soul so that we can impart this information to others in our own way so that we can be good and faithful servants. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.